Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 133. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Never mind it is a how truth long it is. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We're going to change things up a bit, as they say. Instead of interviewing a guest, Becky and I are going to talk about her latest book, Shadow Ranch. It's the first novel in the Children of the Light series. But first... A word from our sponsor. Out in this here West, we don't do things like them Easterners do. No siree, Bob, we don't. Like this here three-hole paper punch. We don't need one of them thar fancy things with that handle for making all three holes, nope. We get our stack of papers, quickly aim our three-barrel gun, and pull the trigger. And, say it, Sally, the holes are right where we want them. Plus, there's no cleanup, neither. Next time you need binder paper, bring it out here and see how it's done the real way. Or get one for yourself for only $99.99 per barrel. Pay no money now. That's just $188.96. Order yours today so you can be holy. We'll begin with Becky reading the back cover blurb for the story. Not knowing he has other wives, Ksenia Clark marries a man who sequesters her in his isolated desert compound with no way to escape alive. University of Arizona student Ksenia Clark knows where she's headed in life and how to get there. But following under a charismatic professor's spell was not part of her plan. When a romantic weekend getaway to his isolated ranch reveals his perverse agenda, Ksenia finds herself a prisoner of a madman. Desperate to extricate herself and her teenage brother from the locked compound near the U.S.-Mexico border, she frantically searches for someone to help them escape. The other captives, who seem content with their unconventional lifestyle, are suspicious of Ksenia and her rebellious ideas. Can she trust anyone to aid her quest for freedom when the group's loyalty is to the professor and their activities are monitored day and night. That brings up a lot of questions. The description sounds a lot like polygamy. Is that right? Yes. For those listening who aren't familiar with the term polygamy, it's the practice of marrying multiple spouses. As far as I know, in most cases, the men have multiple wives. However, sometimes it's a woman who has multiple husbands. Your story is modern day. Not 150 years ago when polygamy was practiced in some regions of the West. Why? I created a contemporary setting because polygamous communities currently dot the West, 
from Canada all the way down to Mexico. I've read of 50,000 to 100,000 people are considered to be in polygamous families in the West, but some believe those numbers are low because polygamy is illegal, and most adherents try to keep a low profile. Shadow Ranch is set in Arizona, not far from the U.S.-Mexico border, and not far from several current, real-life polygamous communities in Arizona and Mexico. Your first series was about human trafficking. If I remember right, you wanted to show readers it's a social issue that plagues our country, as well as many other countries. And then you wrote about religious cults, in part because we know people trapped in those kinds of groups. What drew you to writing about polygamy? Is it another social issue you're concerned about? About the religious cults, yes, I wanted to let people know religious cults abound in America. I've read there are three to 5,000 such groups in our country, and I've read 10,000. They're as difficult to count as polygamous are. No one really knows for sure. Also, I interviewed several people who escaped religious cults, and they still suffer the effects of the abuse that happens in such controlling groups. So I just wanted... <laughs> to let the world know that sometimes uh, the shiny outside isn't what goes on inside a high-control organization. And about polygamy, I don't know anyone in such a relationship. Uh, however, I've read uh, several books by people who've escaped their so-called families, and it's a miserable life. Also, though I don't care to watch Sister Wives, I want to combat the normalcy and glamour the television series attempts to create. You say you want to combat what TV portrays as a happy polygamous community, but if people want to live like that, why not let them? I remember Waco in 1993. Well, <laughs> um, I would say that, yes, this is a free country, but in so many of those communities... There are generations and generations who've been raised in um, a closed situation. That's where they go to school. That's uh, the only people they see are their aunts, uncles, or all the mothers, all the different mothers and all the siblings. I mean, some of these families are just huge. And then they're all connected to the other families in the communities. In fact, there's a high degree of birth issues caused by um, a lot of the intermarrying that goes on. But those people really don't have a choice. And the idea is, for a woman, is and, and some of these girls are married off as, as young as 12, and start having babies, can have oh, a whole bunch by the time they're even 20. And their education isn't. It's subpar in a lot of cases, and higher education is not encouraged. Leaving the group is not encouraged. Independent thought is not encouraged. And, yeah, the men get all the bennies, supposedly. Uh, and uh, the women are just there to work, uh, make money, take care of the children. 
And the thinking in so many of those communities is that marrying that man, is, if he's of the right faith, will be the one to get them to heaven. So they're very dependent on maintaining that relationship or at least um, marrying someone within that religious group. You say the story is about polygamy, but isn't it really about forgiveness and redemption or about making amends to God and to others? Well, <laughs> that's reading a lot into it. <laughs> it's not necessarily the storyline. It is showing the, the challenges of living in a group like that and the horrors of being imprisoned and whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally, and how, how different people in a group will work through that. Who's accepting, who's not. Oh, just from what I've read, um, there's, there's an awful lot of bickering and backbiting and jealousy, which would be normal, I think, for any family, no matter whether it's American or in another country that has uh, multiple spouses competing for the attention of one. And something else I've read is the children suffer greatly. Um, They're put to work early, of course, married early. The girls are. Boys are kicked out because they're competition for the girls. But the children, they may have playmates, but they may have, and they have lots of moms, but they may have, what's the word? They They may have, you know, the five of us against the five of you, or whatever kind of conflicts. But also, none of them, none of them get enough dad time. There's just just no way that's possible. So yeah, the story's about all that and more. Explain what you mean when you say boys are competition for girls, so the, the boys are kicked out. Does that mean for jobs? What's going on there? It is known and documented, and uh, Warren Jeffs is in prison for these men taking more and more and younger and younger wives, and they have, oh, man, I can't remember the highest number I've heard of, but, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 wives of some of them that certainly can't remember the names of their children, and they have a hard time remembering the names of their wives, who may or may, may not see them, depends where they're located. I read of one community, or one guy who had some of his wives down in South America, some other wives in, where was that? Utah, maybe? Um, some desert, oh, I think it's near California, some desert area. And, you know, another group of wives. That I don't think any wife ever gets to live alone and have the guy to herself. But they're spread out and poor as they can be, just struggling to survive. Because no guy makes enough money to support that many people. In fact, all those women are actually supporting him. Um, but, but, but back to your question. <laughs> this is about the boys. Um, they... Obviously, I can ramble on and on about this all day, but I promise you my book doesn't ramble. Um, boys are competition for those young girls. And, you know, just the, the sickness of men uh, getting into this multiple wives thing, there's just kind of like pornography does and 
so much of the perverse sexual stuff. They just crave younger and younger and younger children. And if they allow the boys to stay around, then uh, unless they marry them off quick and, and decide who they're going to marry, you know, somebody they don't want, then they could, if, say, the, the girl's 12 and she wants to wait, or her parents want her to wait till she's 15 to marry, but the, the kid's 13 and uh, it could be a problem. I have read and actually have heard of a situation right here in Idaho and not probably, I don't know, half hour from here where a couple kids, young boys, are found walking along the road, had been uh, kicked out, little education, some work experience, of course, but no, no idea what goes on out in the world in real life. So you're saying the guy doesn't support the family, families, I guess you'd say, uh, but that the women support him? How so? Well, I saw a documentary where the guy took his, uh, I think he had five wives, was looking at another one, a young girl. He, he did his part. He loaded the wives up into a van, don't know about the kids, and took them into town, a pretty big city, and um, dropped them off so they could go door to door to sell magazines. That was his contribution. The rest of the story is these women all collect uh, welfare. I mean, only one of them is legally married. The rest are uh, single moms, and so and with multiple kids, so they collect welfare for all of them, WIC, food stamps, whatever. So in this documentary I was talking about, um, they all lived in a ooh, barren plotted desert with, um, I think they might have each had a ratty old trailer house. Uh, I can't imagine what it was like when the wind blows through in the winter. But so probably their housing was sort of paid for. I don't know about electricity, etc. In that story, the guy had previously owned a dry cleaning business, but no longer did. So not sure he was much used to the family except for making more babies. And that story, there's many versions of that story. One woman had a good-paying job in town, and her kids, she had to stay there, like, for the week. It was a distant city, and so the rest of the wives took care of them. And then the the man put his teenage boys, who were still in the group, um, they're not all kicked out, I guess, uh, put them to work in construction jobs, but they were to support the family with that money. It was not their money. And um, I can't remember what other sources besides welfare and all that that they had. But I've also been told, read, that they some men in Utah undermine the bids of other companies uh, for construction of, I'm not sure what kinds, but probably lots of different kinds of construction because they use child labor and they don't pay the kids. And um, so they can way underbid other people. So no matter how you look at it, they're kind of defrauding the the government and you and me, the taxpayers of this country.
it sounds like then these guys are kind of like the pimp collecting the money while the prostitute does the work. Is that right? <laughs> That's a good analogy, except that he wants those kids, which isn't, that's not how it works in the, the pimp world. But yeah, it's, it's all about him. It's, we, are, we are sinful people, and some of us take sin really deep. All right, so how much of this is true and how much is fiction? Well, it's, <laughs> I think I answer all my questions with well. <laughs> it's, it's a novel, so of course it's all fiction. However, <laughs> uh, being a typical author, we pick up tidbits from life, and many tidbits in that book are not necessarily related to polygamy, but just happen to be something that I overheard or I oversaw. Or I, I use a lot of idioms from uh, Russian in this book. Um, those are true as far as Russian idioms go. <laughs> but I'm trying to think what else in the storyline. It's just always fun to think of, you know, what I overheard uh, my grandmother say or the neighbor, something the neighbor kid did and that was funny or whatever and insert it into a story. So uh, it's definitely a fictionalized book, but it is based on the fact that polygamy is a trap, in my opinion. <laughs> and I would like to hope that it would not be glamorous and desirable for anybody, and that in somehow my writing would keep someone from uh, falling into that pit that's really hard to get out of. I'm thinking of a, another Idaho story I heard where a young, young woman escaped, but her dad happened to be the leader of that group, and he was not happy, and he tracked her down, and uh, from what Others who went looking for her can tell pretty much drugged her to the point where she was a zombie and, as far as anybody knows, has never left. So I just would hate to see anybody get caught in that trap just because that sounds really cool to be married to a guy with five or ten wives and then discover it's really not cool. Your protagonist was guided and encouraged by her grandparents' faith. Were you? Is that where you got that? No. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. <laughs> um, I'm just... Both of my grandmothers, my grandfathers died early. My grandmothers were, were dear, dear ladies, but not necessarily church attenders or ones to encourage me in my faith. But I was kind of, what's the word? Being a kid, you don't notice those things. Uh, later in life, I realized that, yeah, they both did have uh, a deep faith and just wasn't something that they held my hand and sat me down and said, now I would really like you to accept Jesus as your Savior. In fact, I, I remember praying for my grandmothers for that to happen for them, and not that 
I, I knew their spiritual condition, but I wanted that for them. I'm trying to think if I had any <laughs> older people in my life that did lead me that direction. One thing that has been, now that I look back, consistent in my series is there does tend to be a, an older godly person who is um, kind of a rock in the protagonist's life. Let's get a taste of the book by you reading the prologue. Okay, this is Shadow Ranch, the first book in the Children of the Light series, and the first several pages, just to give you a taste. For as long as she could remember, Ksenia Clark had harbored a love-hate relationship with the Arizona weather. Tonight, she tilted toward love. A spring breeze drifted over the hillside patio, teasing her hair and carrying a sweet citrus blossom tang from a nearby orchard, a smell so delicious she could taste it. Below her, Mexican poppies blanketed the rocky slope, their golden petals luminous in the sunset's waning rays. Saguaro silhouettes, dozens of them, rose above the poppies and creosote bushes. Ksenia imagined the tall cacti with their barrel arms raised heavenward to be prickly desert warriors, welcoming the night. Babushka Arena, her Russian grandmother, would say they were praising God. Ksenia, a penny for your thoughts. She smiled and turned to her host. Across the table from her, just beyond a candle flickering in a lantern, Brewster Wiley winked. I'd swear you were a thousand miles away. Tall and slender, yet buff beneath his fitted suit jacket, the University of Arizona professor had a trendy blonde haircut, short on the sides, with a bit more on top, a reddish-blonde five o'clock shadow, and a smile she couldn't resist. As always, the pocket handkerchief in a silver-gray Armani jacket matched his silk tie, this one a blue paisley print. Such a beautiful evening. Ksenia lifted her wine glass, twisting it to catch the candle's shimmer through the ginger ale. In Russia, she drank wine, but here, she was too young. I always enjoy sitting on your patio with you, Brewster. The view is amazing. He raised his glass in response. A view made even lovelier by your presence, my dear. You can barely see me, she laughed. Oh, but I remember. His eyes glittered in the candlelight. She didn't blush easily. In her industry, beauty was expected, but something about his tone triggered a flush of heat. She patted her cheeks. You're embarrassing me. Good. He chuckled. I'm that kind of guy. He drained the glass, set it on the table, and stood. I'll be right back. With his long-legged stride, he was across the patio and inside the condo in moments. Smiling, Ksenia shrugged the lightweight beige shawl her babushka had crocheted for her off her shoulders and settled into her chair to savor the peaceful evening. But as often happened when she slowed long enough to relax, the dissonance that plagued her soul surfaced a dissonance never more apparent than when she sat on this patio. It wasn't Brewster's fault his concrete and steel condo was a far cry from Babushka Arena's cottage on the north bank of Russia's Usfa River, or that her little village by the same name was the only place Ksenia could picture when asked about a hometown. 
Tucson had become a somewhat permanent residence after she entered the University of Arizona, yet she had no special attachment to the city. To any city, her entire life, she'd been caught between cultures. From birth, she and her brother Sergi had been shuttled around the world until their photojournalist mother tired of homeschooling them. Her solution was to leave them with their parents in their isolated Ural Mountain community. But their American father, a mining engineer with clients on almost every continent, had objected. Nadia, no, yet. Ksenia giggled, her father who knew a mere handful of Russian words used yet whenever possible. They can't learn anything useful in that two-horse hamlet, he'd insisted. They need an American education to be somebody and get somewhere in this world. Nadia had bristled at the insult, but he was adamant. The compromise was for their children to live in Tucson with their paternal grandparents from January through June, and in Uzfa with their maternal grandparents from July through December of each year. Below the patio, Tucson's lights twinkled to life across the valley, one after another, like reborn fallen stars. Ksenia blew out a long breath and let her shoulders relax. She could watch this light show every night. It was a great way to unwind. Now 19 and a U of A senior, she only returned to Russia during school breaks. But 14-year-old Sergi continued to be shuttled back and forth every six months, an unfortunate arrangement that made them both sad. She was her brother's best friend as well as his stateside guardian. No one understood the impact of their rootless upbringing like they did. Neither their parents nor their grandparents grasped how the two of them didn't feel at home anywhere, how from their early years they hadn't fit into any particular culture, how they didn't have a sense of belonging in either Russia or America. They were outsiders on both sides of the ocean, no matter how hard they tried to adapt. Ksenia's solution was to avoid close relationships. The better someone knew her, the more likely they were to realize she was not in her own plate as they said in Russia, regarding awkward situations. She put on a confident facade, but had a feeling her confusion and discomfort were obvious. We're freaks, Sergi had complained. Our accents give us away, even though we speak English better than we speak Russian, better than my American friends speak English. Remember, she said, they haven't had the years of language acquisition classes the Tucson School District required us to take. They can still tell we're different. Her brother tried harder than she did to assimilate. He'd even undergone accent reduction therapy. But living in Russia half of every year reversed any progress he made. She sighed and turned to the wavering candle flame. Too bad Sergi's accent was such an issue for him. He hadn't mentioned it lately, so maybe he was outgrowing his frustration. The mild zephyr wind, one her babushka called a vetera, caressed Ksenia's shoulders and danced the candle flame into the smooth jazz wafting from hidden speakers. She adjusted her sundress straps and flipped her hair behind her shoulders. The dress is Brewster's favorite. A long sea-green chiffon, he said, matched her eyes. Brewster. Her heart skipped a beat. The man was an enigma, which is what attracted her to him. That and the fact he was the best-looking professor on campus— Ksenia hadn't been searching for romance. She'd fast-tracked her degree program, which meant she devoted endless time and energy to schoolwork. She also monitored her brother's schooling and drove him to his activities. In addition, the two of them freelanced as fashion models. She hardly had time for friends, much less romance. Somehow, however, 
Romance found her. Never in a million years would she have pictured herself perched on a professor's patio with a wine glass in her hand, basking in a beautiful evening. Yet, here she sat, just because he asked her to proofread a book he was writing. According to Brewster, her papers outshone those of his other students, thanks to her, as he said, impeccable English. The language acquisition classes had paid off, as well as proofreading for her mother, who, though she was Russian, wrote mostly for English language publications. He'd been so kind to her in surgery and their Tucson grandpa, Gordon Clark. At least twice a week, the professor appeared on their doorstep with a takeout meal in one hand, flowers in the other, and a baseball glove under his arm. Sergi's eyes always brightened when he saw the glove. This is for you, Ksenia, Brewster would say, so you can spend your evening studying, not cooking. After they ate, he'd send her to her desk, and he and Sergi would play catch until dark. Ksenia loved watching them through the office window. She knew how much her brother missed their dad. Though Brewster didn't attempt to replace their father, he filled a hole in Sergi's life. Now that she thought about it, he filled a hole in her life, too. One she didn't know she had. Due to university rules, they'd kept their professor-student romance under wraps, as Brewster suggested. She grinned, having their own little secret, just the two of them and her family, added an extra zing to their relationship. But then her friend Diane spotted them at a restaurant. Later, she said, Ksenia, just because your father's overseas doesn't mean you have to hit on a prof for daddy love. Professor Wiley may keep his beard short, but I see a hint of gray in it. That's not how it is, Ksenia had protested. When I'm with him, I feel tethered, no longer like a balloon bouncing from place to place, searching for a place to land. Please don't tell anyone you saw us together. Her explanation didn't convince Diane, but that was okay. Ksenia was used to being misunderstood, and she herself didn't understand how easily the settled sensation gave way to her ever-present ache for stability when he wasn't around. And sometimes even when he was around, like now. Despite her fickle feelings, Brewster's maturity was a refreshing change from her ex-boyfriend, Thad, who lived and breathed sports and reeked like a locker room more often than not. Shaking her head, she remembered the night he took her to a high school wrestling match. He'd heard wrestling was big in Russia. Seated on the hard bleachers, surrounded by a noisy crowd, they'd split a candy bar and washed it down with a shared soft drink. That was months ago. She hadn't dated anyone more than twice since then. Until now. She took another sip of ginger ale and swiveled her chair in time to see the first star emerge above the mountains behind Tucson. Then another, and another. Whatever did I see in Thad, she wondered. Other than his sky-blue eyes, she pursed her lips. Strange, she couldn't remember. Hearing the glass door slide open, she faced the table again. Smiling his wide, irresistible smile, Brewster stepped onto the patio. Ah, Ksenia's heart flip-flopped. Apparently. I haven't forgotten what I see in this man. She watched him walk around the patio table. Nice looks, sharp dresser, good taste, great conversationalist, generous, congenial. Well, most of the time, he'd snapped at her a time or two, but he always apologized with flowers. He attributed his mood swings to post-traumatic stress disorder, resulting from trauma he'd experienced in a special forces unit. Brewster didn't sit at the table. Instead, he knelt before her chair, bringing with him a whiff of aftershave. 
He must have added a splash when he removed his jacket and tie, along with the holstered handgun he normally kept on his belt. His blue silk shirt, now open at the neck, exposed a short chain with his initials in the center. B-A-W. Ksenia grinned. After a bit of wheedling, she'd learned his middle name. He took her hands in his. I have a question for you. She tilted her head. A question for me? He dropped hints of a long-term relationship, but Brewster Wiley was a busy professor with a demanding side business, something to do with sales. She hadn't dared to expect anything more from him than their current clandestine intimacy. How much do you like the view from up here, he asked. Oh, I, uh, this wasn't the question she'd expected. I like it, a lot. You probably never tire of seeing sunrises and sunsets without buildings to obstruct your view. My view can be yours, along with all this. Brewster released her hands and indicated the three-story condominium rising behind them. Its tall windows reflected the last glimmer of sunset. When he pulled a velvet case from a shirt pocket and opened it, angling it so the diamond inside captured the candle's glow and refracted a brilliant burst of golden light. When you agree to marry me. Will you marry me, Ksenia? To her surprise, yes was not the first word to come to mind. Rather, it was home. Marrying Brewster would establish a permanent home for both her and Sergi who'd love to live in this fancy condo on the hill. They could finally put down roots, be tethered to one spot on the earth. Sam, as Sergi liked to be called in Tucson, could enter high school assured he wouldn't be forced to leave his friends behind after the first semester. Wouldn't need to relearn pop culture each time he returned from a village that hadn't yet joined the 21st century. He could embrace his world and be a normal American teen. Transitioning to a different culture every half year had been hard, especially when their Russian dedushka and their American grandmother both died while she and Sergi were in opposite countries. Surely their parents would let Sergi live full-time with her and Brewster. Wait. Ksenia sucked in a breath. How could she even consider his proposal? Diane was right. At 45, Brewster was almost as old as her father. Marrying him could spark generational clashes as well as cultural clashes. Even now, he sometimes acted like a bossy big brother, certain he knew how to do things better than she did. Russians would say he liked to set the weather. And then there was his PTSD, which would likely affect a marriage. Brewster leaned closer, probing her soul with his beautiful gray eyes. Ksenia, sweetheart, did you hear my question? I'm sorry, you caught me off guard, she paused. I am honored you asked me to marry you, but... But what? He looked so concerned she couldn't help but smooth the worry creases between his eyebrows with her thumbs. You're a professor, Brewster. I'm one of your students, a foreign student at that, and much younger than you are. You're a gifted, mature student, Ksenia. He took her hands again. A woman weeks away from receiving an undergrad degree two years ahead of your peers. I'm proud to say I helped you achieve that goal. Lifting a lock of hair from her shoulder, he studied it in the candlelight. I know I've told you before, I love this color. It's natural, right? She nodded. It's like he released the strand and ran his fingers down her arm, sending chills along her spine, like burnished copper. 
None of my other... He stopped. She lifted her chin. Other? Oh, I tend to date blondes and redheads. Rooster's boyish grin never failed to cause a hitch in her breath. Must be something in my DNA, he chuckled. None of them have had hair quite this color, natural or otherwise. I'm glad you like it, she smiled. Americans say redheads have more fun, but I didn't have much fun until I met you. Actually, Americans say blondes have more fun, but I consider your words a compliment. He removed the ring from the case. I plan to have a lifetime of memorable moments with you, Ksenia, all because God told me you're the one for me. <gasps> really? Ksenia gasped. God talked to you about me? She clutched her chest. When was that? The first day you walked into my class with your beautiful hair catching the light from the windows and your long legs. Well, let's just say I was more than ready to obey when he spoke. Oh, what did he say? Brewster frowned as if annoyed she questioned him. Not much, just she's the one, but that was enough for me. He grasped her left hand in his. Remember, Ksenia, when you marry me, you'll no longer be a foreigner. You'll be Mrs. Brewster Wiley, and through me, you can become an American citizen. She didn't want to ruin the moment by mentioning she and Sergi already had dual citizenship, thanks to their parents, or that she hadn't actually accepted his proposal. He slipped the ring onto her finger, lifted her to her feet, and for the first time said, I love you, Ksenia Anya Clark. She wrapped her arms around his neck, sensing the weight of the ring. Did diamonds always feel so heavy? I, I, I love you too, Brewster Anton Wiley. Just remember, Ksenia, sweetheart. He nuzzled her neck. Until you graduate and leave the university, no one can know you and I are engaged. If when anyone asks, tell them this beautiful ring came from your Russian boyfriend. The two of you will be married there this summer. So there you have it. An idea of what Shadow Ranch is about. Becky, where can our listeners find this first book in the Children of the Light series? You can find the ebook and the print version online, the different um, online distributors that I'm sure you're all familiar with. And also the print version can be ordered through uh, bookstores. I'm pretty sure it's not on any shelves yet. And also, I don't know if people know this, but a lot of books can be ordered through libraries. So the library pays, but the reader gets them for free. So that's pretty cool. And you can also watch my website, beckylyles.com. Click in there and look around and um, links are provided to the distributors. And you can see the podcast on there and um, also join my newsletter. I would love to have you on my newsletter list. And I promise I keep my Word that it is truly a rare and random newsletter. I will not be bombarding your inbox. Before we go, I'd like to read a short quote from His Favorite Wife, Trapped in Polygamy 
by Susan Ray Schmidt. Where was the excitement I had anticipated as the wife of a leader? Babies, hard work, and poverty were the lot of a polygamous wife. Our colonies consisted of run-down homes filled with lonely women and children, waiting for the scattered moments when her husbands could find time for a hurried visit home. Yet the times Verlin was home were the most frustrating of all. Knowing he was close, yet sleeping in another wife's bed was pure torture. The irony of it was that when he was with me, I felt sorry for the others. Interesting perspective, huh? I need to add a disclaimer before we go. Although I said I haven't watched Sister Wives, I have seen ads for the series, plus I have a couple friends who occasionally inform me about episodes. People who've had experience with reality shows tell me the real in reality is sometimes lacking. So take them all with a grain of salt. As I mentioned earlier, I don't know anyone in a polygamous relationship. My comments come from the Bible's accounts of miserable plural marriages, as well as from reading books by contemporary ex-polygamous family members, and from watching documentaries. Not only because polygamy is illegal and not God's plan for marriage, but because it seems to me like a nightmarish way to live, my thoughts are obviously biased. If the subject of polygamy interests you, however, please do your own research. I am not an expert, but I did include a list of related books at the back of Shadow Ranch. Much more information is available at your library or online. One last thought. I've shared serious considerations on this podcast, but I want you to know Shadow Ranch is a fun, fast-moving story, one I know you'll enjoy, despite a handful of cringeworthy moments. Thanks, Becky, for joining me in our living room for this interview. <laughs> and for those who are listening, thank you. <laughs> well, my pleasure, dear. <laughs> Even though you got me off guard with some of those questions. <laughs> but you get a kiss for this. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> um, and yes, thank you so much for uh, listening in. And I just want to remind you that you too have a story. Be sure to live it to the fullest. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.